between 2005 and 2007. Albert Gonzalez was the mastermind behind the theft of 170 million credit cards and debit cards. It's the largest example of credit card fraud in U.S. history. And one of the ways he did it was to sit in the parking lot of, say, Dave & Buster's or TJ Maxx, and then connect to their Wi-Fi around closing time. And from there, he would simply collect the credit card data as it went across the network. You see, back then, the magnetic stripe on your credit card was used at a point-of-sale device, and it broadcast over the unsecured network thousands of credit card track one and track two details. Back then, the payment card industry data security standards, or PCI DSS, didn't really cover wireless. It was too new for them. Of course, with the arrest and the conviction of Albert Gonzalez, he's doing 20 years in federal prison, that all changed. Now, there's a wireless security aspect to PCI DSS. I cite this PCI DSS example because with IoT and OT devices out in the field, something similar is happening in our critical infrastructure. Maybe not credit card data is being stolen, but certainly other data is leaking out, if not network access. It's no excuse. As bad actors try to leverage any means necessary to get on a network, a lot of the IoT and OT devices look pretty good for doing that. Here's FBI Director Christopher Wray testifying before the U.S. Congress on January 31st, 2024, about Operation Volt Typhoon, a recent Chinese attack on U.S. infrastructure. There has been far too little public focus on the fact that PRC hackers are targeting our critical infrastructure, our water treatment plants, our electrical grid, our oil and natural gas pipelines, our transportation systems, and the risk that poses to every American requires our attention now. China's hackers are positioning on American infrastructure in preparation to wreak havoc and cause real-world harm to American citizens and communities if and when China decides the time has come to strike. This is a story about how IoT devices could be used in future cyber wars and why we need to be thinking about that today. I'm Robert Famosi. This is Error Code. Uh, name is Mohamed Wakas. I'm a field CTO for Armis, a cyber exposure management platform. Okay, some of you may remember Mohamed, or Mo as he's known, from episode seven, where he talked exclusively about medical devices. I met up with him again at this year's Sector, Sector 2023, and we talked about topics beyond medical. In fact, Armis, it does all of these things. Yeah, Armis is the cyber exposure management platform uh, that focuses on identifying all the various aspects that of an organization that pose a risk to the organization's uh, security posture. Uh, this includes all managed assets such as enterprise uh, devices, but also, uh, you know, based on our talk today as well, think of critical infrastructure assets 
all operational technology, medical devices, building management systems, uh, doing a complete analysis, uh, providing complete visibility and risk reduction strategy for the organization. It's kind of weird to think that a device in front of you, any device, your laptop, your phone, your smart TV, your internet connected toothbrush, these are now the front lines in information security defense. I asked Mo to explain that evolution, how we went from having a perimeter that was clear and defensible to no perimeter. And now it's every man, woman, and every device for themselves, more or less. Yeah, so uh, I think uh, traditionally what happened was all the assets, everything that was connected to the network of an organization was behind the four walls, if you will, and very clearly demarcated by firewalls, right? You're either in our organization, you're in our network, you have access to what we deem you have access to. And at the end of the day, you go home, you're kind of completely in your own different network there. Uh, what's happened, especially, and has been fast forwarded by COVID, the work from home, et cetera, is really this dissolving perimeter. So it's no longer that all the assets are contained within those four walls. Now it's tied to your user identity. And you can access those resources from anywhere in the world. Trick here being, you're also now an entry point into our organization from anywhere in the world. All the security controls that we invested in keeping our four walls secure may not be as effective if you're not within those four walls. So increasingly what we're seeing is the entry of entryway of attacks are happening through the compromise of users, whether it's through phishing uh, attacks or through some type of social engineering that might happen to get a foothold into the organization. And the challenge now becomes that this is happening globally. So staying with the phishing attacks and so forth, they're looking for credentials. They can gain those credentials. And because you're not physically there, in many cases, the authentication well, it may not be awesome on the device. So someone compromises a device, now they have all the rights and privileges of the network that you have. Absolutely. And uh, attackers are getting very creative. Um, of course, multi-factor authentication has been a really big security mechanism, uh, especially since COVID, the whole work from home area. A lot of organizations have adopted it, but so have attackers. So being able to craft these pseudo two-factor authentication that are you know mimic just like a phishing email, a phishing multi-factor authentication site. So they're also able to circumvent from that perspective or social engineering. Hey, we just texted you a six-digit number. Can you just provide that to us so that we can validate your account, taking advantage through that mechanism? So we can set up all the different defenses in the perfect example of multi-factor authentication, but social engineering can very quickly circumvent that. That's the common perspective, and that's probably what most listeners are familiar with. What I want to get into are the ways in which you don't necessarily think are opportunities as part of the attack surface. That would include what? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if I were to pick that one apart, I think the attack surface overall for an organization has been has expanded quite a bit. Uh, because you have all these different smart assets, you have building management systems, you have all these different entryways into the environment, they all pose components of your risk. Now, imagine a vendor just simply comes in to service one of your operational technology devices, uh, or they uh, plug into the building management system, they can plug in their laptop and your security controls aren't monitoring that device. If you're just going traditionally based on, I have this antivirus deployed, I have other asset management agents deployed, but they're not on that vendor's network or that laptop rather, they plug that in. They now become an extension of your network. 
The other part that we're seeing a lot of happening is third-party risk. So a lot of these vendors would also have some type of entryway into your environment. Uh, if they have an engineering workstation that they might remote into, so think of TeamViewer being installed, or a lot of healthcare organizations, they have a direct site-to-site -site tunnel with vendors that provide supporting services. What happens in this case is, yeah, you're doing a lot of risk management for your network, but another organization has a direct link, a direct connection into your network. So a lot of these third-party compromises that we're seeing actually end up compromising a lot of the other organizations as well that they have a foothold into. Right. So again, I want to go into this uncharted territory more because I think solar winds and other supply chain events that we've seen, people grok that, they get that. I'm interested in how the HVAC system can come into play or the elevators or the smart building as a whole could come into all of this. When we're talking about all these different smart assets, uh, a lot of them have vulnerabilities that are years and potentially decades old. A lot of them also have network connections. A lot of them also call out to cloud uh, platforms. So a prime example is a uh, IP camera manufacturer that was compromised as a way because their admin credentials were actually found in the clear in an API call. So what attackers were able to do is harvest those credentials and now they were able to uh, impact, I believe it was 145,000 IP cameras spanning multiple different um, organizations, including large electric uh, electrical vehicle manufacturers, hospital systems, prison systems, and they had footholds into all of these environments. Here we're talking about Volt Typhoon, that potential attack on U.S. critical infrastructure that I mentioned in the setup for this episode. Volt Typhoon included the use of thousands of internet-connected cameras to provide network access to U.S. naval ports, internet service providers, and utilities. Of course, one might ask, why didn't the U.S. naval bases, for example, set up their cameras better? Now, a lot of times, organizations, when they're implementing smart uh, devices like these, they'll connect them. A lot of them are plug and play, and a lot of them are being introduced outside of the security team. So the facilities team or the physical security team might be plugging these in, and they don't necessarily do all the checks and balances for the cloud-hosted platforms, for the access to these different types of devices in the environment. So um, that's what we're seeing in, in a few different areas become the entry point uh, for these smart um for these smart um, devices. Another prime example is uh, UPS systems. UPS systems, they're uninterruptible power sources that provide automated backup electric power to load whenever the input power source fails. And yeah, these are connected to the cloud. A lot of them are deployed, right, throughout various different verticals. What ends up happening is there's vulnerabilities that are coming out in the way it authenticates against its cloud platform where attackers can actually download uh, or uh, send unsigned firmware right back to that, um, that UPS. So it's reaching out to the uh, centralized cloud platform. Hackers are being kind of the man in the middle where they're saying, hey, yeah, I'm that cloud platform. Or, and they send right back a maliciously signed firmware that they've, the the power supply will then up that will then upload will then unpack and that becomes an entry point for attackers into the uh, into the environment itself going back to the camera example i'm thinking of where some footage was released on online from that attack how could that have been a damaging attack 
How can you pivot from something like that to something more interesting and more sensitive? Absolutely. So what, uh, cameras are interesting because context of cameras is a lot as well. Uh, there's a difference between a camera that might be in a clinical environment and a camera that might be used for, let's say, you know what, making sure that there's no issues in a ATM that might be out on the street, so more physical safety. Uh, but absolutely, these uh, cameras can run uh, outdated firmware. And the fact that you're able to compromise the management console of these IoT cameras, that gives you a lot of power to be able to, whether it's change configurations, whether it's uh, invoke certain types of communications, or even, especially in this case, when it was admin credentials, being able to leverage those cameras to get a foothold into the environment, right? And a lot of times when these devices are introduced, they're introduced for the sake of convenience. They don't undergo the necessary security uh, scrutiny or kind of a configuration analysis, if you will, uh, before they get plugged into the environment. So segmentation, especially when we're talking critical infrastructure, when we're talking other types of environments, um, they may not be as segmented uh, as enterprise assets, which are clearly demarcated, clearly identified. So when you don't have such a well-segmented network getting a foothold, these IP cameras are running Linux. Attackers can download right their toolkits onto these uh, IP cameras and then look for lateral movement opportunities, getting closer and closer to their objective, which may be whether it's to download ransomware. In some cases, I, I don't need to move further laterally in. I can just execute ransomware, uh, whether it's data exfiltration or any other objective that they may have at the end of the day. So medical being an area that Mo is most familiar with, it's a great example, but not everything's fully segmented there. Some healthcare person might go to the pharmacy and get a high blood pressure cuff and bring it in, and that's connected to the internet. Now, it didn't go through the usual provisioning, and so it's part of the hospital or health organization's internet. These examples, they can be damaging. Absolutely. So being connecting a device, um, especially if it's a documented device or if it's a device that may be fairly old, um, vulnerabilities are known, credentials are known. Uh, gets connected to the actual environment, and it's an entry point into your environment. Hospital networks being extremely flat, uh, there are attacks that are happening against those types of uh, devices essentially every day, right? Uh, and to keep in mind that it's not necessarily uh, even an entry point, but it can also just be used because that device has is on the network, because it has certain vulnerabilities, attackers even can leverage that as a lateral movement the device that they're on, maybe it doesn't have the necessary vulnerability that can be used to exploit ransomware as an example, but now I just found another device that can. So I can actually move over to that device, do what I need to. It's not monitored. It doesn't have the antivirus agents. It doesn't have the necessary level of monitoring that the, the device I'm currently on has. So I can actually move over to that one completely unbeknownst to the actual IT team and actually, actually carry out my attacks leveraging this unmanaged IP camera or glucose monitor or whatever medical device it is to actually execute my attacks. So there's a minefield of problems here. First of all, in the United States, we're talking about a software bill of materials. How does Mo feel about that as a potential step toward resolving some of these issues? So I think it starts with visibility, right? So in order for us to understand uh, how we can secure something, we got to understand what that something is, right? So going beyond the physical device make model, we need to understand what constitutes its actual software stack, because that's also where the vulnerabilities will be. Getting that information allows security teams up front to either 
uh, conduct the necessary um, steps prior to introducing the devices into production. So think about, you know what, the software bill of materials, there's a lot of outdated software. The very first thing is we need to update them. Uh, as well as in the case of a vulnerability disclosure, being able to understand and assess what is my, what is the actual impact uh, to me as an organization. So when the Log4Js, the movements of the world, et cetera, came out, uh, it's a matter of understanding, am I impacted by this? And if so, which devices? And then I can figure out how do I put compensating controls around that if I can't upgrade those devices? So I think that's a key element that's missing today. So software bill of materials is going to be a huge step forward in the visibility space. Us getting the software bill of materials doesn't magically remediate any of the risks that are found there, but it is uh, a level of visibility that security teams don't have today that they have struggled massively with in some of the more recent uh, vulnerabilities that have been disclosed. So Log4j, a vulnerability in Java that a lot of systems had worldwide, is very interesting in the sense that it created a fire drill within a lot of IT organizations. Initially, they'd come out and say, oh, we're not affected. And we never used it. And then they'd look back and they'd find that, oh, there was this open source package that did use it. And they were vulnerable. So having a software bill of material or an SBOM, that's going to create more fire drills where people will suddenly realize, oh, crap, we actually have a lot of this outdated software running on our system. And these organizations, will they be able to respond? I'm going to say no. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe it's an unpopular opinion, but I think the security industry as a whole, uh, we cannot keep up with the number of vulnerabilities that are coming out at the rate they're coming out with and at the criticality that they're coming out with. Uh, I like to call it the velocity of vulnerabilities. It just seems that vulnerabilities are coming out faster and more critical than they have before. It's an upward trend. There needs to be a fundamental shift in the way security industry and community addresses and prioritizes vulnerabilities. Um, and that's, there's no simple answer. I'm not going to be up here talking about, hey, this is I have the silver bullet to remediate all of this. But I think it takes into account uh, a lot more than the CVSS score. Uh, we need to look at which of them are being actively uh, ex exploited, rather. Uh, how many of them are you know, business critical, which of them are actually impacting devices that are internal, but also the different security projects. We talked about segmentation, right? This is that classic blacklisting versus whitelisting approach. Uh, it's a very painful, very complex project and initiative that's organization-wide, but it is something that is very necessary. So as a security industry, do we start putting and I think we do need to start putting more resources into how do we segment our, our assets? I'm not even going to say our network because assets can be data. They can be users. They can be a whole, take a whole bunch of different uh, forms. But we're seeing that we're fighting a losing battle when it comes to vulnerabilities and we need to figure out something better. I think segmentation is a way of us to get ahead. Um, but until unless we get to a state where we're more of a, a whitelisting approach, um, there will continue to be fire drills, unfortunately. There are a lot more vulnerabilities today, perhaps because, well, there's more testing going on and we're finding all the low-hanging fruit and clearing that out. So one could make the argument that when we do get something like Log4j, we get something big and powerful because it's something we've overlooked in the past. First of all, I love what you just said because... Getting This is kind of that catch-22 of getting uh, visibility is you're going to be seeing a lot of things 
that are critical, that are vulnerable, that you haven't seen before, and they could be vulnerable from 20 years ago. So uh, visibility generally leads to a lot of things we need to figure out. Now, I think when it comes to Log4j versus others, um, if you look at the NIST vulnerability database statistics, uh, just in general, the number of vulnerabilities, the CVSS scores, the remotely exploitable ones, those are all definitely increasing in um, in frequency that over the past you know year over year uh, type of thing. Um, some of the larger ones, let's say like a Log4j, uh, Move It, uh, Solar Winds, these are all where we're seeing. I think in the past five years or so, have really, really uh, increased in uh, their frequency. Now, some of them might accommodate a Patch Tuesday, where yes, we found a whole bunch of Windows critical vulnerabilities, but I think what we're starting to see a lot more of is uh, supply chain risk uh, being embedded into this. Pre Historically, it was a lot more of, let's say, Windows-based patches. Now, I think it's much more on the um, software uh, supply chain side of the house, but also I think security vendors as well. Uh, the, the compromises that we're seeing are from these trusted vendors that I think is a little bit eye-opening where people are starting to realize that I need to make sure that I have my own compensating controls in place and not necessarily rely uh, on the security of others uh, in the meantime. So at Sector, Mo is actually presenting on cyber warfare and how it could affect the critical infrastructure. Perhaps this is more important than dwelling on Log4j. So... Uh, Nadir and myself will be presenting on cyber warfare and how do we defend our critical infrastructure against this. Uh, over the past few years, cyber attacks have evolved in terms of complexity, in terms of impact, in terms of uh, even who the threat actors are, right? So going from a general uh, nuisance of a bunch of pop-ups on your screen to uh, ransomware that was for um, you know, financial gain, to now uh, politically fueled, right, nation-state actors, and also targeting um, industries and environments like critical infrastructure that can result in physical harm uh, to civilians. So we're seeing a, a, a general trend moving forward in uh, the complexity of attacks uh, and involvement in more so cyber warfare, kind of picking, uh, unpacking, what does that mean? Unpacking uh, what the different components of a cyber warfare attack are, but also what are, how do organizations feel that they're protected against it? How many organizations feel that they are well protected? How many organizations understand the risk that they're at when it comes to defending against cyber warfare, but also when it comes to critical infrastructure, what are the special considerations you need to have, you need to take into account? Uh, because securing critical infrastructure assets is a little bit different than securing your enterprise assets, right? Uh, so, what we want to do with the the end of the presentation is uh, have a set of recommendations and guidelines for our audience to be able to implement tomorrow. And the big takeaway here is for the security industry and community as a whole is there's no magical uh, platform or technology that will solve what uh, the, the problems of today. It really has to start at the top. Uh, there needs to be a fundamental shift in what, how we think about assets, uh, how we get our visibility, the level of visibility we need to get. Uh, but also, how do we automate as a security industry a risk uh, a risk assessment, a risk reduction strategy? How do we embed and integrate with the different uh, fabric that the security teams have? Because security uh, resources as well are very, um, there's a huge shortage of them. So this is uh, us going through the anatomy of that. Uh, so how is Mo defining critical infrastructure? 
the United States has called out 16 areas in particular, but other nations, well, they have other criteria. So how would you define it? Yeah. So that's a good question. Uh, I think where the way we are approaching critical infrastructure is providing services that are critical for uh, a nation's uh, services to be delivered. So it, it does align uh, closely with what the U.S., the 16 sectors or so that the U.S. has defined. Um, if you think of energies, uh, airports, right, transportation, healthcare, uh, these are all the general industries that we're uh, focusing on. Mo mentioned from the top down. This is thinking in terms of like government regulations, leaning in and putting the emphasis on those in particular? Yeah, so you can apply that top-down approach uh, at multiple scales. So exactly uh, what you mentioned there, even from a governmental standpoint, uh, it's how do we ensure and how do we encourage and hold companies accountable to helping secure. So if we leave it on a per-organization basis, the results will vary, right? Uh, Some would be Uh, may pay more attention to it. Others may not pay as much attention to it because at the end of the day, it also may require some investments. Um, But what's really promising to see is that globally, um, while there may not be one single standard across all governments, each government or each region is taking steps towards mandating some form of cybersecurity as part of their critical infrastructure uh, environments. Um, If we look at the FDA in the US, a very quick example is, you know what? A, A device cannot come to the market unless and until it has cybersecurity mandates built in, the S-bombs, as you were mentioning, but also how are you going to respond to a new vulnerability disclosure? I think that is very key because it's not about securing a device as a point in time, but rather having regular processes established and defined such that if a device is impacted by a vulnerability disclosure, there are methods of mitigation and remediation uh, to help address those. So I'm going to point to automotive. There are some ISOs out there today, and there are some European standards, and there are some Asian standards. And now the UN has leaned in and said, we're going to create a rule or regulation 155 to unify all of that. Is that a good thing? Or is it just more bureaucracy where it's getting more confusing? I think it will be more confusing. (laughs) I think when we're talking about global jurisdictions and uh, globalized companies, I think there uh, generally is a level of complexity rather, that needs to be uh, understood. But the fact that uh, the UN is coming in to try and help simplify, um, I, the way I like to think of this is that this is the first iteration of many to come, right? So it's about drawing the line in the sand at some point. And just like cybersecurity, it's about continuous and iterative improvements. Uh, so in, the, in, in this case, the, uh, the UN has, has uh, grouped these regulations together, provided some form of guidance, it's a matter of let's go back and let's continuously review this. And I think that's one of the key elements that needs to happen is whether it's a yearly review or what that looks like, but how effective have we been uh, in this implementation? Uh, There's a number of different ways you can assess against that, whether it's compliance of different uh, organizations, whether it's the proliferation of vulnerabilities and cyber attacks since we've implemented it, it, has it gone down, has it gone up? I know uh, as an example in the uh, in the UK, there are reporting requirements, so hard deadlines that you must report about assets from your environment. Now, again, that was a great step, but how many organizations are simply reporting for the sake of reporting? How many of them are actually being held accountable to a positive trend? So it's great that we have reporting happening. It's great that we have hard deadlines. But now it's a matter of going back and uh, assessing its effectiveness. I think that's what's going to happen with all the different uh, regulations and uh, frameworks that are coming out. 
So Mo mentioned that assets can be defined differently. What are some of the ways that assets can be redefined? I think uh, assets can be an actual physical device. Uh, it can be a laptop, a desktop. Asset can be a virtual machine. It can be a container. An asset can be a user identity. It can be a, a piece of data. So the reason I harp on our scope and our definition of assets is historically, we've been securing enterprise devices, servers, laptops, desktops. And if you look at information security frameworks or policies that organizations have uh, established, a lot of times they will use the word assets or they will use the word systems. But along the ways, we focus and we equated that to enterprise desktops and laptops, right? So while the policy says all assets should be uh, should have a vulnerability assessment done at the onset, we're only focusing that on the scope of enterprise assets. Uh, but if you go back and look at the NIST cybersecurity framework, it talks about systems. It talks about applica business applications. So if you look at a business system, what that is is a collection of all the different individual components, including the different smart devices that might be required to help support. Um, so if we look at a critical infrastructure system, it's a matter of what are the different, all the different devices at all the different levels of Purdue that are involved in making sure this service or this utility, et cetera, are delivered. For us to just focus on the backend server and ignore literally the hundreds of other components, that's a huge blind spot for us. So whenever I have these conversations with executives, that becomes my very first uh, point to highlight is we as an organization, we as a security company need to make sure that we're not pigeonholing ourselves and restricting our scope to only what we're familiar with. We need to make sure that we are well versed and applying all of our different policies to all the different types of assets that exist. Mo just mentioned the Purdue model, and I think it's biased toward the fact that the enterprise is protecting itself. It's the first point of entry, level five and level four. If those fall away, you've got an air gap. It's the DMZ around level three, and then two, one, and zero. Is that model, though, becoming outdated? Absolutely. Uh, the reason I would say this is even some air-gapped environments, uh, I like to put that in quotes because... Some of them are in concept and on paper air-gapped. But the moment you start uh, assessing and monitoring traffic, as an example, you will very clear-cut see that information is actually flowing bidirectionally through that. Now, that can be, you know, again, something, some type of configuration change might have happened, but there needs to be that continuous monitoring and that continuous validation that our most critical uh, infrastructure and uh, most critical items are secure. Um, now if the, if there's a link and if there's the DMZ, uh, kind of link going between it assets and going down to the lower levels of Purdue, uh, what I will say to this is attackers are very opportunistic and they're very creative. So I actually gave a talk earlier today on, um, you know, a cybersecurity mindset. And one of it is you're a creative individual. You're looking at ways to either, uh, prevent or go on the offensive and figure out a way in. So, if there are certain ports that are allowed through that DMZ, right? Attackers can very well craft uh, attacks or exploits and what have you that are meant specifically to proliferate through the DMZ. So I think it's 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 we're well past the point that we need to do that risk assessment on a technical level. Um, I think we've relied a lot on the air gap, which is a really good 
uh, security mechanism, right? Well, we were talking about segmentation earlier, but I think it's almost an over-reliance that makes us, uh, that can result in us being much more vulnerable than we perceive. OT is definitely getting smarter. And with that, I imagine there's a bit more homogenization going on. So we don't have these specific one-off PLCs that we're talking about. We've got some sort of thin Linux, and that becomes the entry point for what we previously thought was something would never get hacked. Right, the ITOT convergence. So the proliferation, and it's 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 funny because I, I talked about this, um, I think I may have talked about this last year, but what used to be such specialized devices, very prominent form factors, functions, they're now being replaced with much more, like to your point, homogenous types of devices. Uh, vendors, they're also uh, being able to leverage some of the more cheaper IoT type devices and sensors to get the same uh, type of work done. And when you're going through and you're refreshing that environment, you're bringing in all these new devices that have additional services, additional software stacks that we were mentioning that have more communication patterns than the previous ones. And they are all having an entry point to whether it's directly in the air-gapped environment or you're, you might be poking holes into the DMZ to allow the new type of device to function in, in its, uh, its way. So I think uh, we need to take a much more uh, defense in depth uh, approach or maybe revisit our critical infrastructure on the air gap network as a much more defense in depth approach. I think it might be an afterthought currently because of the air gap. So the other thing I'm hearing is that these devices have a lot of slack resources that are more powerful than what we've previously seen. And one could argue that these IoT devices, they have the resources. And I'm just suddenly imagining a whole SCADA network being taken over by crypto mining because I know the resources are just sitting there out in the field. Is that a believable scenario? Yeah, that's a that's a great one. Uh, and I absolutely do believe so because when you look at, as we were mentioning, attackers are opportunistic. Um, especially if you're in this environment and people are not may not notice an impact if there's usually only sustained 5% CPU usage on doing certain commands, right? Um, CPUs, cores, uh, different types of chips have all gotten cheaper over time and a lot of them are not being utilized to their capacity. Um, I, think, I think attackers though may use air gap networks and depending on the critical infrastructure, depending on the industry, because obviously OT is... Uh, prevalent in a lot of different industries, manufacturing, et cetera, as well. Uh, it's a matter of where do I get my most money from? And when we look at ransomware and uh, taking down a critical service, utility, um, or locking up manufacturing um, will probably result in a higher ransom demand that they'll make in a much shorter amount of time than uh, crypto. So I think given the criticality of these environments, Hackers are capitalizing because they understand there's very little room for downtime or there's a very high impact as a result of downtime. Uh, so I think the primary focus will continue, continue to be on ransomware. That's not to say they're not vulnerable to other types of attacks. So what is the takeaway these days from conversations that Mo is having with enterprises? What keeps them up at night? I think, I think the big takeaway and the conversation trends that I'm having with organizations is redefining what risk assessment looks like. That doesn't have to be, again, related to a specific security uh, technology like an endpoint agent, but understanding what are all the different ways my devices are vulnerable, bringing them back to the table and also involving 
the different teams that are involved with the upkeep and maintenance of these OT, IoT smart devices. I think with security, cybersecurity teams, um, they now rely quite a bit on non-technical, non-IT teams like plant managers, like clinical engineering, like biomedical engineering. So it's a matter of how do we do a holistic risk assessment, bring everybody to the table and really draw out a complete picture on where our risks are, what the impact of these risks are, and how do we address them? The reason I say that is because security teams may not necessarily understand the intricate workings of these specialized devices compared to a plant manager, a right, a clinical engineer, or uh, any type of specialized um, role that understands and works with these devices for 30 years. So being able to understand how can these devices be impacted, how do these devices even operate, is something that uh, is, is an area of interest for cybersecurity teams. And I think the only way that we will actually get to a level where we're appropriately securing our environments is that collaboration keyword. And we're starting to see that. We talked about the ITOT convergence. A lot of these cybersecurity conversations are half cybersecurity and half plant managers, OT managers, and uh, clinical engineers as well. Mo brings up an interesting point. The plant manager's responsibility to keep that device going, how do we elevate the plant manager to the point where they know enough to actually think like having good, strong passwords or having basic security stuff where previously they didn't before? Uh, I gave a talk on this a few months ago. It was uh, the evolving roles of individuals that are uh, responsible for maintaining these devices. Uh, when I was talking to another CISO, he said, my team runs the reports, but then we hand those reports off to others to remediate. So I think what really goes a long way in these environments, especially when you're talking to uh, non-cyber or non-technical folks like plant managers and clinical engineers, et cetera, I think a big part of that comes down to security awareness but the security awareness training, not necessarily the training that you do once a year and you kind of click through, <laughs> click next 20 times and then attempt to uh, answer a question, um, but rather really linking it back to what impact can this have on your operations if something were to go wrong? The way I like uh, talking to other individuals and organizations is, you know, we link it back to smart devices they might have in their environment. So would you want somebody, you know, what if Alexa is recording all the time? Or what if you install a camera and everybody can log into it? They kind of start connecting the dots there. So on the flip side of the house, I think it's important that cybersecurity, as opposed to, and I'm not saying we do this today, but, you know, instead of mandating, hey, you need to have X, Y, and Z in place, and this is the process that you need to follow, it's a matter of explaining the reasoning and the impact behind it. Because I think at that point, you start fostering a culture of cybersecurity-minded uh, uh, approaches to all the different issues. And we have now a bunch of teams that when they're procuring these devices, they are innately asking cyber-related questions. And we're embedding cyber into all the different areas of the environment, whether it's uh, the procurement process, whether it's operationalizing it. Hey, I just got a brand new device. Do you guys have any recommendations on what security controls I should uh, implement? hey, Mr. Vendor, how do I change the default username, password, credentials, things like that? So I think that's where we take we we take it to like security awareness training 2.0, if you will. And we're leading into a day when it becomes mainstream enough where people just know, ask questions back to the vendor. I think the more we can have those conversations, the more we can uh, make sure that cybersecurity, again, from a top down, cybersecurity is being involved in all areas uh, of the business 
we'll get to that stage quicker. I think if uh, cybersecurity is kind of trying more from the from the bottom up, where a security analyst is asking a department uh, to take certain security precautions or answer certain security questions, uh, that won't see as much traction quicker. That's not to say there aren't growing pains ahead, whether it's the regulation side of the house, whether it's security training, um, but it's a matter of we just have to keep at it so that it slowly starts becoming muscle memory. Uh, them understanding and knowing upfront what are the 10 questions cybersecurity is going to ask and then being able to understand why it's important will likely drive much more on a security cultural uh, a staff. So I'm wondering, what's the most creative attack that Mo may have brought up in his previous talk? What are we talking about when we're talking about cyber warfare? Uh, on the spot, I think uh, my favorite one, uh, it, it's, it's really, really simple, but I just... I found it absolutely amazing how uh, attackers are able to mimic multi-factor authentication pages and really harvest the multi-factor authentication credentials and authenticate that within 60 seconds and really bypass that without even any social engineering. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of attacks happen on multi-factor authentication systems now. Um, you know, there's there's a few, quite a few in the in the in the news uh, as of late where they house the protections on getting to our crown jewels. So why not target those systems and see if there's a flaw that'll allow us to circumvent that, uh, which we're starting to see attackers get successful. I think identity providers are trying to get more uh, creative in the way they're enforcing uh, multi-factor authentication as well to A, streamline, uh, but B, understanding and thwarting these types of multi-factor authentication attacks. So uh, an example is, you know, uh, Okta is uh, one of the ones that we use, and the fact that it can now leverage Touch ID to, un to as me as a second factor, right? Not only from a convenience standpoint does that help, but the fact that uh, it, in a way, can help prevent some of the other multi-factor authentication attacks if I'm getting a text with a number on it uh, and vice versa. But but given given how important now and mainstream and up and you know center stage multi-factor authentication is, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what other mechanisms can we come up with and how do we better better secure uh, one of our most critical security controls that we have, especially in this day and age. With going back to what we started with, that dissolving perimeter where the user has the access. I'd like to thank Mo for raising these issues with me on this podcast, and I'd like to call your attention to Episode 7, where he talks specifically about medical device security. Either way, Mo is a very interesting person, and I hope to talk to him more in the future. Hey, if you're enjoying Error Code, tell a friend. I'm sure there are other people out there who like Narrative Information Security podcasts. And I'd really like to hear from you. Join us on Discord. Search for Error Code Podcast to join the server or go to errorcodepodcast.com to get more details. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. I've got some great shows coming up, including using ChatGPT to perform side channel attacks on IoT devices. Yeah, someone's already done that and you'll want to hear about it. Subscribe today. I don't want you to miss out.